Let's make a start. We need to pray, and uh, particularly for uh, Simon's sister-in-law, Jane's sister. It's her funeral tomorrow, so uh, we think very much about that. Okay, let's just have a moment for prayer. All right, Father, we ask you, Lord, that you would be very close to the family. Thank you, Lord, that Simon had the opportunity to speak to Caroline and Lord, you're so gracious that she had the opportunity and, and responded. Uh, and Father, we thank you for that. There's a rest and an assurance that she's safely home with you. We pray, Lord, that tomorrow that you will be in everything that's done and said throughout the services, Lord. Help us, Simon and Jane, as they stand there. Lord, they're your mouthpiece into that family. We pray the Lord allow the opportunity, it's a great opportunity, to be able to speak to the unsaved about the world to come. Lord, bless them, we pray. We pray for us tonight that, Lord, our hearts will be open, the inner sense that we may be able to understand the great things of the word. Lord, we know that we're sowing seed tonight and we want our hearts to be the fertile soil. To receive the word. Help us, Lord, we pray, in tune with the Holy Spirit Himself as He leads and guides us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Hello, Mark. Have you got a folder, Mark? Would you. Um, Al, have you got a set of that? Yeah. Oh, great, that's it. All right, now we're coming on to our third lesson and uh, just I need to keep saying this to you because I found it a great help with Revelation. Remember, Revelation, the book itself, if you think of it as was, is and will be. Okay, that's simple enough. So chapter one we've done and that's the was. Told John, you've seen these things, you know about these things. Jesus said to John, so that was chapter one. Last time we met, we had chapters two and three, which, now my interpretation, you know, which I go along with, I really do sincerely believe that at the start of chapter two, when Jesus said, now take these messages to the seven churches, that it was the beginning of the church age. And each of those seven churches Ephesus, Smyrna, Bergamus, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia and Laodicea, each of those seven churches were seven periods of the church history. And so, when in chapter 1, Jesus told John that these things are about to happen, you see, they, they were about to happen, well, exactly, John had got his feet in the doorway of the first church, Ephesus. And like we know, Ephesus being the backslidden church, John was seeing that people were now backsliding, they were going into error and heresy. But John didn't live, obviously, long enough to see the second period, Smyrna, where the persecution came. And then it went on through the seven. Now we, living now, we're in the Laodicean period, the end of chapter 3. So 
I believe that Revelation is unfolding and we can look back from the end of chapter 3 down through the corridors of time and interpret that those things which Jesus said the messages to the churches were a code that we understand they really were seven periods of our of church history, the 2000 year. Now with Laodicea, well that's the lukewarm church, the rich but poor church. And we know all about that, we spoke about that. Now you know, of course, I don't need to tell you this, that the scriptures themselves, they wasn't written in chapters and verses. That it was just one long, when it was put together, it was one long book. Uh, <coughs> at the end, towards the end of the Old Testament, uh, they collected scriptures together, Hebrew, Aramaic, and then they were translated into the common language of that period, which was Greek, believe it or not. And so, the scriptures, the Old Testament, was translated into Greek called the Septuagint or the 70. Now why it's called the 70, I don't know. There must be a reason for it, but I know that it's called the Septuagint. So when Jesus appeared, now that would be about 200 years before Jesus appeared. So Jesus knew that the Old Testament was all written out and people knew it and could understand it. So as the Lord went around, he knew that when he was speaking to them, about scriptures that this was sold, that it would be fulfilled, and so forth and so on. He knew he was speaking to people who knew the scripture, saying, you know, that's something the prophet said. And is this the real Messiah who is fulfilling those prophecies? So Jesus knew that. But coming on to John's day, which was like at the end of the first century, now, well, of course, we've got the opportunity and the privilege of looking back in time. Now, I believe, because we're living in this day and age, that revelation is for this generation. So we can look back and say, wow, you know, that really has happened. But from chapter 4 onwards now, we're looking into the future, the prophecy. And this is where it gets really difficult. Because, well, God, it can be a, a little bit of a trickster, God can, with Scripture. Because you can read something, and it, particularly with prophecy, and it looks pretty clear. Now, I'll tell you why, if you've got your Bibles with you, if you get to the last book, one book, in the Old Testament, Zechariah, in chapter 9, Chapter 9, verse 9. Now, the prophet here, Zechariah, he lived 400 years before Jesus. And Zechariah and Malachi, they both lived together at the same time. And their ministry was to prophesy to Nehemiah and Ezra and encourage them 
to get the walls built and the temple built. You know that, don't you? So Zechariah and Malachi, they're like the last of the prophets. But here in Zechariah, chapter 9 and verse 9, he says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation. And here it is now. Lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. What was that? Palm Sunday, wasn't it? We know that, don't we? Pretty clear. So when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the donkey, he did that because he knew he was fulfilling this scripture here. But then go to the next verse. And he says... I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim. Ephraim is a pseudonym for Israel. And the horse from Jerusalem. The battle bow uh, shall be cut off. He shall speak peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. But that hasn't happened. We're still waiting for that to happen that Jesus will speak peace to the nations and he sets up his dominion which will be from sea to sea, means worldwide, and from the river to the ends of the earth. Now we know that that has happened. So, when you go back to verse 9, a colt, the foal of a donkey, full stop. Well, from that full stop to the next verse, there's 2,000 years, and still it hasn't happened. And that's what you've got to watch with prophecy. Now, if, I was in, uh, if we were in the Old Testament, you see, and we recognised this is Jesus, the Messiah, and look at this in our, in our Bible, you know, it'd be the Old Testament, really. You know, it tells us he's coming, he's done it. He's just ridden into Jerusalem on a donkey. He's going to set up his kingdom. Oh, you know, we're there. And that's what they really did think because they read the prophecy. But like I say, with God, you know, he doesn't give it as clear and simple as that. 2,000 years between verse 9 and verse 10. And throughout scriptures, and particularly with prophecy, that's what you get. So, the Old Testament, in nowhere did any prophet see this age that we're living in, the church age. It was never seen in the Old Testament. All they saw was like two mountain peaks, one behind the other. Anybody who's done mountain climbing or hill climbing will tell you that this happens. If you're driving along the A55, going towards North Wales, you come to a sign which says, you know, you're entering into, and then it's called like, a, you know, a sort of, a, the land is called, the landscape is called a, the, a beautiful landscape, which you've got to be seeing. And you go, and then just behind that sign, you do a slightly left turn, and you go downhill. And as you go downhill, you turn right, and as you turn right, there in front of you is all of Snowdonia, all the mountains. 
And you see right the way down the valley, all the way along, past Rill, Colwyn Bay, you know, Langdudno, uh, across and Bangor in the far, far distance along the coastline. But there are the mountains. And you see Snowdon in the distance. And in front of it is another mountain. Well, I've been there. And I can tell you, the mountain in front of it is nowhere near the mountain behind it. There's a great big valley between it. Mm. Uh, you know, I, I did an exercise there. I can, I can tell you I nearly drowned in one, of the, in one of the rivers there. And there's a valley between those two peaks, but you wouldn't see it when you're driving towards Snowden. So the Old Testament prophet, you saw these two peaks. The first one was the coming of the Messiah. And the second one, the one behind it, was the kingdom being set up and the Jews being, of course, Israel, that they were going to be the centre of the earth, just the capital of the earth in that day. What they didn't see was the great distance behind the first peak to the second one. And that distance is the church age. And prophecy is like that. So when we read the scripture, we think Acts, the book of Acts, we think the poor, you know, it was always on the go, on the go, on the go. No, 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 he wasn't. When he went down, let down on the wall from Damascus, when just after his conversion, he went into Arabia for two years, and then he went back home to Tarsus for nearly seven years until Barnabas collected him. And then when he was on his missionary journeys, he got to Ephesus and he stayed there two years. You know, but you don't get that in the Acts. You read it there, you say, God, how did he keep up with it? You know, the, the distances, it was the travel, he must have been going one place to another to another. No, no, no. You know, all these things happened with the distances between them. And prophecy is like that. Read John's Gospel. How many chapters? 20? The first 12 chapters deal with three years, from John the Baptist to Jesus' resurrection. Right? So that takes you through. Chapter 12 is where you read about Palm Sunday. Now from Palm Sunday to when Jesus was crucified is one week. But from chapter 12 right the way through to nearly chapter 18, you know, that's one week. So from chapter 12 to chapter 20, we're dealing with a very short period of time. And these things you don't really get into your head while you're reading the scriptures. So when we're coming now to Revelation and we're looking at prophecies, all things are going to happen in the future from now, nobody, not even me who knows everything, no, nobody, and no matter who they are, if they tell you they know it all, they don't. Because God has his own way of fulfilling scripture. But what God does do, it gives us the indicators that things are happening. So be aware. That's, that's what God does with prophecy. So, now we enter the end of chapter 3, the beginning of chapter 4. And let's pick that up. It's only a short chapter in Revelation. Just 11 verses long. 
After these things, John said, now after what? After what? Straight after the message to Laodicea, and it wasn't the end of chapter 3 and the beginning of chapter 4 for John, it was the next thing that happened. As soon as he'd seen Laodicea, and, and Jesus had told him about Laodicea, then this happened. After that, this is what happened to John. After these things I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. The first voice, back to chapter 1, which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you things which must take place after this. Immediately, and that word immediately is extremely important, extremely important. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven, one sat on the throne, and he who sat there was like a jasper and a sardius stone in appearance, and there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and on the thrones I saw twenty-four elders sitting clothed in white robes, and they had crowns of gold on their heads. This is heaven. John's in heaven, this is what he's seen. And from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings and voices. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Before the throne there was a sea of glass like crystal. And in the midst of the throne and round about the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion, the second living creature like a calf, the third living creature had a face like a man, and the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. The four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within, and they do not rest day or night, saying, Holy, Holy, Holy. Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honour and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne saying, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honour and power for you created all things and by your will they exist and were created now we read that but I tell you now there's something if somebody very close to you dies very close to you dies then chapter 4 here is a great soccer to you it's a help a comfort a real, we had somebody very close to us die and I couldn't stop looking in chapter 4 of Revelation <coughs> and honestly I thought he's seeing all this now you know the throne and the emerald rainbow and the sea of glass you know this is what he's seeing now 
And I was there, wanting to be there, seeing it all. Uh, it, 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 really, I can't express, unless you've been through it yourself, what a comfort it is to read this chapter and to know that your loved one is there. But, even further on, we're going to see it one day, maybe soon. You know, it's a lovely, lovely chapter. Let's go then to the folders. And now that you've got the, the notes, <coughs> Sandra is quite keen to tell you that I made a mistake. That's what you get married for. <laughs> on, the, on the first page of the notes, page one, um, who knows about a typewriter? What's next to the letter J? It's K. So I wrote King Keynes <laughs> instead of King James. And I was going to kid you that King Keynes was King Kong's brother, but I knew you wouldn't believe that. So I've got to tell you it's a mistake. So if you've got K there, just change it to a J. But what she hasn't noticed, Sandra, is there is another mistake. And before you sack me, I'll tell you. Later on, you're going to read in the notes that the Old Testament, well, the Bible was written over a period of 2,500 years. But you can stand up and say, that's a load of rubbish. No, it wasn't. That's right. The two is next to the one. It should have been 1,500 years. <laughs> so when you get there, change it. Don't show it to people, although they say that bloke doesn't know what he's on about. Okay, so the Bible's written over a period of 1,500 years. We'll come to that later. Let's go to the notes then, chapter, uh, page 10. Chapter 4 of Revelation begins with the words, after these things. What things? Remember that the scriptures were not divided into chapters and verses when first written. There is no division of thought between Jesus giving the messages to, about the churches to John and then the following things that were going to happen. After these messages, the church of Laodicea, John sees a door open in heaven. The voice of the Lord is a trumpet saying, Come up here and I will show you things which must take place after this. The text goes on in verse 2 saying that John was immediately, immediately in the spirit. His natural body was standing on the earth during the passage of events in chapters 1, 2 and 3. John was there on the earth and Jesus was showing him things that had been, things that was to come. But now, now, and now at the start of chapter 4, he's called up into heaven and is in the Spirit. Paul the Apostle wrote to the churches at Corinth and Thessalonica. Thessalonica was probably the first epistle he wrote, 1 Thessalonians, and instructed them in the ways of Christian living. Amongst these instructions, it tells them that there will be a day when Practicing Christians will suddenly be taken out of this world and be transformed immediately into spiritual beings and given their new home in heaven. And to save you turning it up in your Bible, 
I'll print it out here. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 51 and 53. If you know your Bible, you know that 15, chapter 15 in 1 Corinthians, the longest chapter in that book there, and it's all about resurrection, the resurrection. The Corinthians wanted to know, you know, why Jesus hadn't come back and some of their relatives had died. So had they missed it all. And Paul was writing to tell them, no, that's sowing the bodies. What you sow is natural. What comes back is supernatural. You know, and at the end of Paul telling them about the resurrection, he says this, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, or immediately, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this, and this mortal must put on immortality. That's what he said to the Corinthians. But to the Thessalonians, he said the same thing, but differently. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. There is going to be a day when suddenly every practicing Christian will disappear. They will not die, but like Enoch and Elijah, they shall be caught away to be with the Lord in heaven. This is known as what we call the rapture. All right, let's just stop there for a moment now. When John, at the end of hearing about Laodicea, what happens then? Straightway, no, div no division of a chapter between it happening, but the Lord had just told him about Laodicea, and then he hears, John hears, a voice behind him like a trumpet, and he turns around and looks up, and he's called up, he sees the door open in heaven, and the voice says, come up here, and immediately, he didn't have to climb a ladder or stairs, or he didn't rise slowly, you know, and sort of float up. Immediately, he was in heaven. And chapter 4 in Revelation is the rapture that Paul spoke about in Corinthians and Thessalonians. And it's the same. And that's why I believe in the ongoing book of the Revelation as something which is continuing, rolling along and going on. But chapters 4 and 5, John is seeing things happening there as soon as he's called up into heaven. And in chapters 4 and 5, which we're dealing with tonight, he sees wonderful and marvellous things. And he's intending to told to write them down, to give them out. So with John suddenly taken into heaven, it's got to be the same as what we've just read in Corinthians and Thessalonians, that after the Laodicean period, the period we're in now, 
the rapture takes place. And then, Revelation, after 4 and 5, chapters 4 and 5, from chapter 6, right the way through to the end of 18, it all happens in a period of seven years. And that's called the Great Tribulation. Now that's for the next study. But that's why, if you can get in your head with the book of Revelation, it begins to open up then. There's an understanding that chapter 1, I'm only repeating myself, but I need to repeat it because if you keep it in your head, then you've got the basis of understanding the book of Revelation, chapter 1, things that John saw, chapters 2 and 3, things which you see now, and then from chapter 4, 5, it's taken up to heaven, and from chapter 6, all the way through to 18, there's this seven-year period that's going to happen on the earth. The argument goes on. When will the rapture take place? Now, I would argue... Well, I wouldn't argue. I mean, you know, it's a saying, isn't it? Uh, no point in arguing. But, but if I was to, you know, sit in a debate, and if somebody said to me, why do you believe the rapture is before the tribulation? I would go to the end of chapter 3 and the beginning of chapter 4 in Revelation, and I would say, that's why. That's why. We've had the opportunity, really, of the last lesson going through church age, church history. You know, we've had the opportunity to do that. And then straightway, John is taken off the earth and is in heaven. And so I believe that this is in code, like we said, which the book of Revelation is all about, in code, the beginning of understanding, the way that the book is written for us. So like uh, the Gospel of John, you can get eight chapters that deal with one week, and you can get like 12 chapters dealing with three years, or like Zechariah, you've got the period between Jesus going into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday and 2,000 years before the next verse happens where he speaks peace of nations, or 2,000 years plus or whatever. You know, on that. There is even and I'm treading on really unstable ground here. I'm in a minefield. But, and this is for another time, and we're not going to debate it tonight or talk about it tonight. The very first two verses of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, between those verses, there are possibly billions of years. Billions. And that's called the gap theory. And back in the Victorian period, there was a man named Pemba. And he wrote a book called Earth's Earliest Ages. And he talks about why between verse 1 and verse 2 of Genesis, there is this huge gap. You know, there. So scriptures, like I say to you, is you've got to keep that in mind. That's why I could say, you know, that as far as I'm concerned, I believe that this is the way Revelation is broken up. From chapter 4 onwards now, we're looking to the future. And I can only tell you, as I understand it, that 
this is what I see. I would never say to you, this is what's going to happen. You know, this is what's going to happen. Eric, who's sitting here, gave me um, a small little book um, the weekend, and, and it's uh, a lovely fellow who's with the Lord now, but he was at Solial Church uh, Renewal, and he wrote this uh, 42 pages on the book of Revelation. And um, I read it while I had my breakfast, Eric, and if you believe that, you'll believe anything. No, no I sat and read it. And um, this, this lovely fellow, you know, he, he, wrote these, he wrote these 42 pages, and he, like me, you know, or I, like him, um, interpret what I'm telling you exactly the same way. Now, this is a fellow who died in 2005, it would be, wouldn't it, Eric, four years after, because he wrote in 2001. So, you know, I'm sort of not out on my own, being like, you know, somebody shouting this and this is a brand new thing. No, not at all. Now, there are people, and I told you this at the very first time, who believe that revelation has all happened. You know, it's, it's all happened in the first century. So, you, you read in history. Other people believe, well, nothing's happened. It's all going to happen in the future. It's going to happen in that seven-year period of the Great Tribulation. It hasn't happened yet. And then, you know, the majority would take what they call a dispensational, you know, interpretation, which is what I do. And that's that it is happening as we go along. Uh, I like to think that the scriptures confirm itself. The scriptures will always confirm itself. And mainly because Jesus told John at the end of chapter 1 and into chapter 2, he said, these things are about to happen. Now, he wouldn't say that if there was a 2,000-year period before, you know, no, the Lord isn't going to confuse us at all. So along these lines, this is the way that I see it. Now, has anybody, let me just stop and ask, has anybody got a question that you want to ask? Or, yep, can you speak up because I'm a bit uh, mutton. Well, that's what I was trying to say, actually. I think I, I, think I heard what you said. I, I used to be a drummer when I was in the army, and I'll tell you what, my ears are absolutely shot. You know, so I think I picked up what, what, what you said. But <coughs> um, with prophecy, nobody, nobody can doctrinate. Doctrinate means they tell you that this is so. You know, nobody can do that. I tried to show us how, you know, like Zechariah, uh, that's going to happen, what Zechariah wrote. But nobody who lived in Zechariah's day would have believed that there was 2,000 years when he took a breath, when he said, and he shall ride into Jerusalem, lowly on a colt, <gasps> and as he took the breath, you know, and then started, and he shall speak peace to the nations. And nobody thought when he took the breath, there was 2,000 years, you know, between them. And he didn't know either, Zechariah. He was just saying what the Lord 
told him to say. Does, is that, have you got the gist of that? Is that all right? Okay. Anything else? About the rapture. What's the one? <laughs> you've, you've, you've opened up a big pit and you're pushing me into it. <laughs> now look. Yeah, what, what Simon said is, well, when the dead in Christ rise, well, who are they? Because the dead in Christ are with him. We believe that, don't we? You know, Paul said that, for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. You know, he wouldn't say that if he said, well, for me to die is have a long sleep until the Lord calls me. You know, no, 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 he didn't say that. He knew that you transfer from this life into the next one immediately. Now, the thing is, is that when the rapture takes place, the church, who are the people who are raptured or taken out of the world, they're called the Bride of Christ and they go to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And they're there while all of the great tribulation is happening on the earth. But when Jesus spoke on the earth about the marriage and being clothed upon with the marriage robe, you see, in the Master of the Feast, he saw somebody who, get, who hadn't got the marriage. You know what I'm talking about? Master of the Feast saw, Jesus said this, who saw somebody without the marriage robe on and said, friend, what are you doing here? You know, uh, and so the marriage robe for the church is a brilliant white garment. The white garment in scripture is the righteousness of the saints. That's what it is. It's the righteousness of Christ that we're clothed upon. Now, those who die now, before the rapture, they're with the Lord. But the only way they describe it is it's a soulish body which they have. They're not clothed upon with the robe for the marriage supper because it's not happened yet. They're with the Lord, you know, but they're waiting for that day when the marriage supper takes place. You know, and the bride and the groom are joined and, 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 and that's the ultimate for the church. So, when Jesus calls the church out of the world, first the dead in Christ rise, and then we which are alive and remain, or they who are alive and remain, shall be caught up together to meet the Lord in the air, so shall we ever be with the Lord. Well, that's when all of those soulish bodies of the loved ones in heaven, they receive at the same time the marriage garment that we have, which is the new bodies incorruptible bodies you see and that's the only way it can be described really Shimon because there is nowhere in scripture where it says well when a, a, a person dies all down through the church age they go to be with Christ it tells you that in there but it doesn't say when the dead in Christ rise but why do they rise if they're already there you see and it's always been a misnomer that about whatever. So it's described as being clothed upon with the new 
garments, the marriage robe. And that's when our loved ones who are there with the Lord will be complete, completed. And we, at the same time, got to tell you this, only because it just lightens the, the load a bit. Sorry? I didn't catch that. That's a good explanation. <laughs> it's what? Well, good. It was a good explanation. It was a good explanation. Yeah. Well, I want you to say that now that it was really nice. <laughs> Thank you very much. Just polish me halo a bit. <laughs> no, no, no. I've got to tell you this. Got to tell you this. Right. Well, it sounds like it, doesn't it? It does. It sounds like it, and I suppose in a way. You're right there. Yeah, Dave? That, that Shout at me, Dave. That word rise is a link to the literal interpretation. It's a literal interpretation. It doesn't necessarily mean literally rise in the proper interpretation. Yeah, uh, yeah I, I think I know what you said there. Dave. You see, we've got this idea. <coughs> I'll tell you the story, really, because, uh, because it explains what I'm saying. I started going out with... Well, I'd, I'd finished with the army, and, I, and I, I wasn't a Christian. But circumstances in the army, I ended up in a military hospital and things like this, you know. And then through that, I, I come to know the Lord. Now, I knew nothing about church life, you see. Uh, and I started going out with Sandra, who's a, a proper title is Saint Sandra. <laughs> you see and I didn't know where you take a Christian girl you see so I took her swimming <laughs> and I thought can't take her to the pub you know, really. or to the pictures or things like that you know so I didn't know what to do with her. well she told me that um, her dad uh, you know her dad was lovely really lovely fella her dad had got a friend called Eric and Eric goes to a church over the past, I can't explain it too much because you might meet him. But but Eric goes to a church over there, you know. And um, and Eric, he got this gift where it was like a gift of miracles, really. And Sandra's dad told me when I was at the house one time. He said we'd been to a meeting at the town hall. He said that's him and Eric, and they were walking down Cobble Row. And the last bus was just going. And Derek commanded the bus to stop. He said, the bus stopped. <laughs> he said, the bus stopped. And we got on the bus. And he said he got this gift, sort of, you know, that, that was one of many things which had happened with Eric. And then, <coughs> a dad went on to tell me, we were walking past Keel Cemetery, you know, Hockley Cemetery. And Eric said to Stan, Sandra's dad, said, you know, so I, I, I've got the faith to resurrect the dead. Yeah? Well, Sandra's dad, he told me, he got the fright on. He said, come on, you know, and, and moved him on a bit. Well, he got the idea, the notion, that if Eric prayed for the graves, that you'd see the people rise, like Lazarus, you know, the group that's suddenly come. 
then. No, that's not going to happen like that. It's not going to happen like that. When Jesus comes, we've got that idea in our head that the dead in Christ shall rise, you know, first, and then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them. No, it's going to be instantaneous. The sea, which has swallowed up loads of Christians, you know, through wars and, and tragedies and so on, Christians that have been eaten by lions, so there was nothing, you know, of themselves, or, or, or those who have been blown to smithereens, who's got no grave at all. I mean, you've only got to go to the First World War cemeteries and see all that. You know, there's, there's lots, of, lots of Christians with no burial place at all. But God is the power. But it's to make us understand on the earth here something which is very spiritual. But it's going to be instantaneous. Paul was answering a question to the Thessalonians and to the Corinthians. The Thessalonians got it all wrong. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 and 17, that's what Paul wrote there. You know, we shall not all sleep, but we shall live. You know, we shall rise again. So when he sent that letter to the Thessalonians, not a Corinthian one, but to the Thessalonians, well, they received it. Oh, wow, that's great. So they gave up work. And they, they were sitting around waiting for the Lord to come. And then they were getting into a mess. So they sent a message back to Paul saying, the letter that you sent us said that the Jesus is coming. It hasn't happened yet. And we've got people sitting around in the church with their feet upon the mantelpiece waiting for him to come. You know, and so Paul had to write back to them in the second letter to the Thessalonians and say, no, you know, if they don't work, don't let them eat, that type of thing. He said, no, 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 certain things are going to happen first. And in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, that's where you read about a personage called the Antichrist, who's going to be the world leader in the time of the tribulation. And Paul, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, he told the Thessalonians, you'll see the beginning of that before the Lord comes, you see. Now tell them to get back to work, that type of thing. So with the rising of the bodies, Simon, it's only to help us to understand because anything spiritual is beyond our comprehension. When Jesus, when he talks about streets of gold and walls of transparent gold, you know, to us, that's absolutely incredible. But really, he was talking to people who was walking down streets which hadn't got tarmac and they were having to avoid all the animal droppings and things like that. And so when they went in the house, the first thing they had to do was wash the feet because the streets were so dirty. But Jesus told them, these streets are paved with gold. You know, it's a gold city that's there. Well, what could be further from your imagination when all that you knew was dirt and mud tracks? Well, it would be a fantastic place to, you know, to understand that. But does it really mean that the city is going to be like that? We don't know because the eye hasn't seen and the ear hasn't heard all of those wonderful things that God has prepared for them that love him. But to make us understand, they have to give these comparisons. Sandra's brother is blind. He's been blind since he was four years of age. And he doesn't remember seeing at all. 
And I tried this with him. I sat with him. And I said, his, bro his brother's name is Mark. <coughs> and he's a very intelligent fellow, I tell you. And uh, I said to Mark, I said, tell you what, Mark. I'm going to describe to you the colour red. So, how do you describe to a blind person what a colour is, colour red? How can you tell it? The contrast between a brilliant colour and a pastel colour means nothing to him at all because he'd never seen that. So, I thought I was clever enough to do that, you see. And I said to him, red is like a loud colour. If you was to touch it, it'd be all rough, red wood. I said, but if you got something like a pink colour, but that's soft and it's warm. And I thought I was doing really brilliant. Honestly, I did. I thought I was doing really brilliant here. Describe me. And I said to him, you know what I mean, Mark? He said, I've got the faintest idea what you're on about. That's what you say. Got no idea what you're on about. Now, the Lord had got that problem, you say, trying to explain to us about things, heavenly things, when we can't comprehend because there's nothing on earth to compare it to. You know, that's, that's the, the thing. So when he said the dead in Christ shall rise, it will be an instantaneous thing. In fact, I think on the next page we'll read that. So, are you all right with, with that if we carry on? Hmm? Okay. Top of page 11 then, we may just be covering things that I've just talked about, but at least this will help you if later you read into it. The word rapture does not appear in the Bible. It's a descriptive word used for the taking away of the church on earth to heaven at the Lord's coming. Notice that this event will happen in a moment, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. The Greek word used here is anatomo, in meaning in an atom of time. Uh, it was told me when I, when I was first learning this, it was told me that the twinkling of an eye takes about one fortieth of the time for you to blink. And that's how quick the transformation is going to happen when Jesus comes for the church. And that's how quick it is when the dead well, they're already with Christ anyway, but the dead will receive those in heaven. The garments as we receive, the gar wedding garments, to go to the marriage supper of the Lamb. So there isn't going to be a slow rising up. People are not going to be walking down Ignall Street in Oxley and Keel Cemetery. Suddenly the, all these spirits start to rise slowly. No, there's nothing like that. You know, it's an in an instant. So there isn't going to be the dead in Christ, wait for you to get your clothes and then we'll come up and join you. No, it happens immediately. Immediately. Jesus was talking about his coming back to earth in Luke 17, verses 22 to 37. He mentions that people will suddenly disappear. The scripture says, I tell you in that night there will be two men in one bed. The one will be taken and the other will be left. Two women will be grinding together. The one will be taken, the other left. Two men will be in the field. The one will be taken and the other left. Now in that day, in Jesus' day, 
How could people be in the field at the same time that people were in bed at night? Well, they didn't know in Jesus' day that the world was round, and while it was daytime there, it was nighttime somewhere else. But Jesus spoke about that, and nobody questioned him. You say these are the things. So Jesus spoke about people suddenly disappearing. Revelation chapters 4 and 5, they're the preface. That's things that are happening before events that are to occur immediately after the rapture of the church. We should mention here that there are different opinions throughout Christendom as to when the church is taken out of the world. There are some that believe the church will go through the, fo the following seven years of tribulation, others that the church is taken halfway through the seven-year period. Now, there is a word here called immutability, and immutability is only held by God. It's one of the characters, it's one of the facets of God. Immutability means that he never changes. You know, he never changes. So, what he did in the Old Testament is still current today in his nature, in his way that he deals with things. Now, I say here, consider the attributes of God, that he never changes. He would not let the judgment of Sodom proceed until Lot and his wife and two daughters left the doomed city. The angels, if you remember the story, the two angels, they told Lot, his wife and two daughters, get out of the city, is it going to happen? And, and they were sort of, well, hold on, you know, they, they might be on the way, they, they might be on the inner circle like bus or whatever, but, you know, waiting for the, the other sons and daughters-in-law to come. You know, they might be here, they might be here. But the two angels, they hurried them out of the city because the judgment of God couldn't fall until the righteous were taken out, you see. And think about that when people say that the church will go through the tribulation. The tribulation is a judgment of God <coughs> on the earth. And yet God has never, never took the righteous along with the wicked. Even more so when we read this here. Uh, other church taken off. Oh, yeah. There are some that believe the church will go through the following seven years of tribulation. Others that the church is taken halfway through the seven-year period. Now, consider the attributes of God that he never changes. He would not let the judgment of Sodom proceed until Lot and his wife, two daughters, left the doomed city. Genesis chapter 19. Remember Abraham, Lot's uncle, said to the Lord, now this is what, what Abraham said because he wanted his nephew to be saved. And while God said, if I find even ten righteous people in the city, I'll save the city, you see. Abraham, had, had, he started off with 50 righteous people and 40 and 30, 20 and then down to 10 and that was it then. And so Abraham was bargaining with God because Abraham wanted his nephew saved. So these are what, this is what the scripture says. Far be it from you, God, okay? Far be it from you to do such a thing as this, to slay the righteous with the wicked so that the righteous should be as the wicked, far be it from you. 
Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? That's what Abraham said to God. And then Paul writes to 1 Thessalonians 1.10, And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. And then he goes on, Paul goes on to emphasise this in 1 Thessalonians 5 aside, For God did not appoint us to wrath. The church is not seen again all the way through Revelation after this chapter 4 until the end of the tribulation when the word appears, the word church appears in chapter 22 verse 16. Nowhere from chapter 4 all the way through that tribulation period is the church seen on earth. It isn't. You know, the only place you see the redeemed, the saved, are in heaven. You know, and the weight of scripture really leans upon the fact. Now I did tell you, nobody can tell what will happen in future prophecy, but we get the understanding of it. And by knowing the attributes of God, the character of God, then we know that he wouldn't suffer the church to go. Some people say, well the church has been going through the tribulation since it started. And in the truth, sections around the world are going through tribulation, as bad as the tribulation. I support a group called CSW, Christian, uh, Christian Society, no, Christian, well, I can't just remember the words now, but CSW always called. And what they do, they, they lobby governments who persecute any religion. But these people who are, who are in London, the CSW, they've got members of parliament, you know, and also they've got members of the United Nations and in Geneva at the Human Rights. So they've got people in these strategic places that when they hear of people being persecuted, then they go all the way through to United Nations and, and the human you know, rights uh, in, in, in Switzerland to lobby, and then they, United Nations and the human rights, they take up, up the cause in the countries. And I tell you, every month I get the reports of what's been happening in the past month, and it's horrendous, the things that... Do you know even in Cuba? In Cuba, they're persecuting Christians who belong like to the house church. And people go to holiday in Cuba. Amazing, isn't it? But they've got the names of pastors who put in prison because they believe, not in the Catholic Church, but they believe in a free church. And they're put in prison. And of course there are, right from China through to Cuba, worldwide, the persecution. So they would say, oh, you talk about the tribulation, we're going through it. And they're rightly so. In this country, we burn people at the stake. We burn people alive at the stake. You go to Oxford and you, you'll see the memorial there to the three martyrs, you know, Cramner, uh, the bishops who were there, Latimer and Ridley, you know, the three who were burned at the stake because they wanted to read the Bible or because they wanted to read the Bible. So we'd gone through that time, maybe, you know, 
three, four hundred years ago. And of course with Queen Mary, not the Queen Mary of the recent, but the Queen Mary who was Henry VIII's daughter, it's Mary I, she wanted this country to go back to the Catholic. Mm -hmm. And so anybody who was found not believing in transubstantiation where the priest says to the wine and to the wafer and then he, he, he rings the bell and the, and the wine and the wafer is literally the body and blood of the Lord. If you don't believe that, then they would burn you at the stake for that. So, you know, tribulation, it really is sort of a word that could be used that the church has always been going through tribulation. But this seven year is the great tribulation. And God willing, we'll be able to look at that next lesson. So, all of this here, God is not appoint us to wrath. There are glimpses of the myriads of the redeemed in heaven. As the prophecy unfolds, the scenes change. And John, he sees scenes changing from heaven to earth and it gets really confusing. Because John, he doesn't make it clear whether he's seeing these things happening, that one happens after that one, and that one happens after that one. He doesn't make it clear. He just writes about his all. You know, and it seems as if he's in the future and then he's back to this time. And now through chapter 6, which starts the tribulation, through to chapter 18, it's a mishmash of events happening. Some he jumps forward, some he comes back to. But he's told to write them down. So, page 12, John is immediately trying, oh, pardon, no, 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 no. Page 13. Yeah. So there's a scarlet thread that runs through all scripture. Shall we miss out the next sentence? Well, no, I've got to read it, haven't I? Got to read it. The Bible is a collection of 66 separate books written over a period of approximately 70 million years. 1,500 years, you say 1,500 years. Moses, who wrote Genesis and the Pentateuch, well, Moses lived about 1,450 years before Christ. So you've got nearly 1,500 years there, you see, when, when the scriptures were started to be written. And then you've got the 100 years, for nearly the 100 years, for John, writing Revelation. So you're looking at about 1,500 years, you see. And 66 books were collected together to make up what they call the canon of scripture, the whole of scripture. So, we inspired writers from all walks of life, from kings, David, right through to the common labouring man. You know, Amos. Amos was just a labourer in the fields. He got the lowliest job. It, one of his jobs was to go along with like a little pointed needle and go to the figs on the tree and, and just prick, the, prick the, all of these. I mean, it was a laborious job and it was a dead job. Anybody could do it, except a blind man. You know, just prick it and then for the fruit to come through with the figs. It was the lowest job that you could have and that's what Amos did. But God used him to prophesy. You know, anybody. 
So 66 books written by all of these people, from kings down to the labourer, labouring man. Different ones, different fields. There were scholars like Ezra, the scribe, and just an ordinary fellow in the street. So yet there is one theme throughout. God revealing his wondrous plan of salvation to a lost world. And that's what the Bible was given for. To reveal God himself as the saviour. Wants the world to come back to himself. That's why the Bible was written. And the deeper you delve into his word, the more treasures you find. And that's the truth of Bible study. And that's why I love it. Always have loved it. So, now I say about this. Four living creatures, the faces of a lion, an ox, a man, and an eagle, and they're there at the throne of God. And really, you know, this is where you find it's fascinating. They've got six wings. What are these creatures? And why are they so close to the throne of God, these creatures? And then remember, the lion, the ox, the man, and the eagle. Each of the faces, okay. Here we go. The four living creatures are shown as guardians to the throne of God. Not that anyone or anything could assault the throne. Satan already tried and was cast out of heaven. Now these beings are orchestrating the worship of God. Heaven will reveal so much more. In chapter 5, John's attention is drawn to a scroll with writing on the front back, uh, front and back. The scroll has seven seals which no, uh, no man is worthy to open. Have I missed the page? Page 12. Oh, I was right, wasn't I? Okay, let's go down to the, uh, the, the top of the page. Um, yeah, of course, John is immediately transported to heaven. He decides what he's seen in chapter 4, right? He describes that, a glorious sight. He, be, he begins to describe the absolute majesty of God in heaven, heavenly splendour. This is the best passage in the Bible to try and understand what we will be seeing in heaven. Now, notice verse uh, 7 of chapter 4. The beast mentioned are synonymous of events throughout Scripture. Now, those four that I've just mentioned, without reading down here, I'll tell you quickly, those four, they, they appear again throughout the Bible. You know, when, um, when Moses brought the children of Israel out of Egypt, it gave the number of the men from age 20 and above 603,550 is the number that's given. Now, though each of those fellas, well, mainly all of them, well, they would all have a wife and possibly, you know, minimum of three children each. So you're thinking about here, three million people on the move. And, and the mind can't comprehend that, three million. But it is huge, huge. And God is a God of order. And what God did, he told them at Sinai, they got to Sinai, and God told them to build him a tent that he could live in and go along with them, with them on the journey to the promised land. This tent was called the tabernacle, and the presence of God would come down onto that tabernacle. 
but it's God coming in amongst sinful mankind. So there had to be a sort of layout for people. You couldn't just wander in any old day, like, you know, going into Woolworths or Martin Spencer's. You, you couldn't just go down to the tabernacle and say, well, oh, fancy sit down in the church and, uh, you know, five minutes sort of prayer time. You couldn't do that. God's presence was there, and this is the Old Testament. And sin can't come into the presence of God. So they set the camp out. The tabernacle was a rectangular building. And then there was a fencing around the building. And then around this compound, on the north side, there was tents of Levites. And down the west side, tents of Levites. And along the south side, tents of Levites. But along the east, there was the tents of Moses, Aaron, and his sons his four sons, on the east side. And that's where the gate was. And then there was a broad space. And these three million people, they were set in a camp which was ordered. And they were told where to pitch the tents. Three tribes on the east, three to the south, three tribes to the west, and three to the north. Now on the east was Judah, and with him he had Issachar and Zebulun. Now Judah, of course, was the one, his name means the praise. So he had the east side. And the south side, well that was Reuben. So they had one of the three tribes, was the principal tribe. So Judah was the principal with Issachar and Zebulun. Down on the south side was Reuben. And he had with him Simeon and Gad. But on the east side was Ephraim, Manasseh and Benjamin. And on the north there was Dan, Asher and Naphtali. So they all had these places. And three million people, a lot of people. And what they did in Numbers chapter 2, it says that they made an ensign. An ensign is a flag. So they put the flag up and they each had an ensign on the flag. So as Kids would know we're, we're going off, running off and playing with the other kids, you know. Time to come home. Well, they knew they could look at the flags. Oh, yes, yeah, this, this is my side, you know. Judah, his ensign was a lion. And Reuben, his ensign was a man. And Ephraim, on the west, his ensign was an ox. And Dan, his ensign was the eagle. Now, they didn't know that up in heaven there were these four guardians of the throne of God, you know, with their faces. But they were told to put the end signs. Now, you haven't got that in the Bible, but it's from tradition, Jewish tradition, that those were the end signs which they had. Then many years later, Ezekiel saw his vision. Mark, he, he, he likes the book of Ezekiel. Well, you'll read in the first two chapters of Ezekiel about this chariot throne of God, it's called, and people think it's a UFO. It's circular with eyes all the way around, and it spins, you know, so people say, oh, that's a UFO. No, it's a chariot throne of God. And it describes on there that there are four guardians of that throne, and would you believe it, the description there is the four that I've just told you, the lion, the man, the ox, and the eagle, you know, 
And that's the Ezekiel seeing it 900 years after Moses was bringing the people out of the land of Egypt. And then we've got our four Gospels. And have you seen it? Matthew, he wrote his Gospel to the Jews. He was interested for the Jews. All the way through Matthew, you read, and this was fulfilled by the prophets. This, what Jesus did, was fulfilled by the prophet. He was emphasising to the Jews that this is the Messiah. And Matthew, he traces the line back through to David, which is most important, you see. So, you could say that Matthew, he was writing to the Jews, and, and the Jews, the literal Jews, were two tribes, Judah and Benjamin when Israel split ten tribes north, two to the south. Well, Matthew's gospel is the lion of the tribe of Judah, you see. But Mark, there was a young trendy kid. You know, he's the one who's got like the Nike trainers and, you know, the up-to-date T-shirts and things or whatever. And he gets his information from Peter, who was with the Lord. So Mark writes his gospel, but, but like a kid, you know, he writes it quick, and the, in the King James Version, the word which keeps coming out with Mark is straightway. And straightway Jesus went and did this. Well, we would say it immediately. But his word is straightway. So Mark is describing Jesus working all the time. Straightway he did this. He immediately did that. Like the ox in the field, you know, which they use for their tractors. He was the workhorse type of thing. So Mark, you could say, They've got the figure of the ox, the working saviour. Matthew, the line of the tribe of Judah. But Mark was like the ox. But then when we come to Luke, the lovely doctor, the compassionate physician. Now when you read Luke, he describes the healings because that's his forte, you see. He describes the healings. He talks about Jesus' compassion. Well, he's the man, the compassionate man, you know. But John, he wrote his gospel to say that this saviour, the Messiah, comes from heaven. And that's where the eagle, that's where his domain is, in the heavenlies. So you've got the lion, the ox, the man, and the eagle all through. And there's a train that goes through the Bible. And like this is what I say... If you, if you dig in the Bible, you'll find all of these things. You know, they begin to appear. I mean, I heard about this like you by sitting and listening or studying with my own time. And you see it and you think, wow, that's amazing. That's amazing. You know, to see that. And there you are in chapter 4. It describes that. But it's a trend that goes through the Bible. Bottom of... Uh, page 12, the Gospel writers each had the reason for writing the account and that's what I've just told you. Okay. Let's try and come to the end now. On page 13, <coughs> go down one, two, three, four, the fourth, yeah. It's worth looking at number seven, or oh, I think we answered the question about this in the first one, didn't we? It's worth looking at number seven, which is used so often through the book of Revelation. 
Numbers in the Bible have significance. The numbers, they have significance. You know, you can take most of the numbers, not all, but most of the numbers, and you can see that there is a pattern in Scripture from that number. So, therefore, each of the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet was assigned a numerical value. The number seven has been given the meaning completeness and perfection. Some see the significance of this number comprised of four plus three. Now, four, no, let's do the three first. Three is attributed to God, being the number of the Trinity, and therefore considered holy. Number three being holy. The world, well, that's four, the number four. Because we've got the four points of the compass, the four points of the earth, the four seasons, and so on. You can see the number four that resembles earthly things. So, looking at that, three is attributed to God, the Trinity, four to the world, so you get four, the world, and God, three, united, give you the number seven. And this is what you get through scripture, because the creator and his creation were made complete and perfect. That's what the creation was, complete and perfect, coming on to the number seven, three for God, four for the world. Okay, <coughs> creator and created. Adam was created in perfection and complete, a complete independent being, yet created to be loved by God above all the rest of creation. The seven colours of the rainbow show God's promise to never, never flood the world again. Bearing in mind the complete and perfect value of the number seven, see the list of seven throughout Revelation. The number seven keeps coming up. And there's 18 sevens there that, you, that we will find the, just go through the middle of Revelation and towards the end. Sevens all the way along and through. No need to tell you them all, they're there that you can read them. Just to finish on page 14. To each and every one of the 18 groups of sevens, there is an appointed place in the timeline of God's plan for the completing of the prophecy of the book of Revelation. The elder shows John who is worthy to open the seals of the scroll in chapter 5. We haven't read that tonight, but you know, in your own time you'll be able to read that. Where John, you've seen the splendour and glory of heaven in chapter 4, and then his attention is drawn to a scroll which has got seven seals, but there's nobody who can open it. And he gets really sad at that, but the angel says to him, no, look, the Lamb is able to open it. Talking about Jesus, you see. Uh, so, the elder shows John who is worthy to open the seals of the scroll. There is no doubt from the description, this is the Saviour, Jesus Christ. Christ Jesus, upon receiving the scroll, heaven erupts with praise and worship of the Lamb that was slain. So, it's a fitting point, point to close the lesson here. The first five chapters of Revelation begin with a captive slave on earth, that's John, on the Isle of Patmos, and by the time you get to chapter 5, that same man is transported 
from an earthly prison into the glories and the wonder of heaven in all its majesty and to see his saviour whose breast he lay upon at the last supper isn't that wonderful isn't that great isn't that great well it goes downhill from now because we're going to go into all of the judgments of god from the great tribulation <laughs> no it's very good that you've turned out tonight really appreciate it hope that that's something that some things that you know about anyway and some things hopefully that has clarified or been new to you tonight okay now just before we close it's something just turned up past eight is there anything anybody wants to say add or ask Yeah, thanks, Eric. Yeah, lovely. About the church. Yeah. Oh, we've got something glorious to look forward to, haven't we? Really. This is closing prayer and then it's our journey home. Father, thank you for our time together tonight. The encouragement of the scriptures. In a world which seems so topsy-turvy, and particularly today, Lord, we've got a firm foundation. Your word... Lord, you've elevated even above your name. Lord, you're bound by your word. You've bound yourself by your word. Father, we thank you for that. Nothing will happen that you haven't already told us about. Lord, help us, I pray, to think on these things, to see these things through, but most important of all, to know it's because of your love for us that you gave this prophecy. We thank you for it. In Jesus' name, Amen. 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 Bless you all. You'll have to speak. Oh, I've got a question. It might seem a very silly question. No, no, but, no. But this here, when it says, you know, he saw on the throne, yeah, one who was the, and he sat, you know, looked as a jasper. Now, is that God the Father? Well, no, it's the throne. Yeah. The throne is like as this. Oh, it's... It's the throne. And, he, and everything says, about the throne. And There's he, no, but, no and description of it. He that sat was to look upon... Like ah, the colour of Jasper. Yes, yeah. I see what you're saying. So, so I'm, yeah. just, the la I'm just thinking... Where in the G when, when John goes up to heaven, he sees Jesus only as the, as the slain lamb. Is this uh, no, I don't understand this. You're right, this way.